The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have done a number of programs on the unique world of underwater and nautical archaeology, and it's a topic that has captivated both lay audiences and professionals alike. Uh, today's guest is one of the most experienced and prominent nautical archaeologists in the world, and uh, he has been brought onto the program and graciously accepted our invitation because we want to provide sort of an overview of how nautical archaeology got started, what its history was, both its dramatic and uh, technical history, and we also want to discuss where nautical archaeology is going and its relationship to the world of conservation and heritage management, which is quickly becoming one of the most prominent issues facing archaeology generally and preservation and heritage management uh, along the same lines. My special guest is Dr. James P. Delgado. He is the Director of Maritime Heritage in the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric administration. Dr. Delgado oversees heritage programs and active research in the nation's waters as well as undertaking outreach and education on America's underwater and marine heritage. He is also the chief scientist for the ongoing archaeological mapping of the Titanic wreck site and he has also been involved in the discoveries of the Carpathia, which is the ship that rescued the Titanic survivors, and the notorious ghost ship Mary Celeste, as well as surveys of the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor, the sunken fleet, and the uh, atomic bomb warships at Bikini Atoll, the lost fleet of the Mongol Emperor Kublai Khan in Japan, and on and on and on. I think uh, his career is basically sort of synoptic version of uh, the history of American nautical archaeology, and I'm very welcome, uh, very happy to welcome to the program Dr. James Delgado. Thank you so much for appearing. Thank you for having me on. You know, with somebody that has such a long-term and long-standing history of doing nautical archaeology, can you give us a little bit of background, how it got started, and what your perspective on nautical archaeology was when you were first getting started on your career? Well, 
nautical archaeology, like regular archaeology, began with explorers who were seeking not only the past, but in some cases treasure, uh, or just a chance to see what was down there. In the 19th century, when diving was first invented, these guys ultimately, of course, would find, recover whatever they could from these wrecks. By 1900, sponge divers in the Mediterranean were finding ancient wrecks with statues. One of those, the Antikythera wreck, has just recently been re-explored, and it yielded not only statues, but ultimately proved to be a working astronomical computer from uh, more than 2,000 years ago. That type of find inspired a new generation when scuba was invented, but it wasn't until 1960 that the first archaeologist actually put on a tank, went to the bottom, and systematically excavated a shipwreck. And that guy was George Bass, who would go on to found the Institute of Nautical Archaeology and a program in nautical archaeology at Texas A&M University. And his dig at Cape Galadonia on a 2,900-year-old shipwreck had a number of people initially saying, well, really, can you do archaeology underwater? Well, he proved not only that you could, but that you could do it to the same standard as on land, and that nautical, maritime, underwater archaeology not only would be a force in years to come, but it would add the otherwise inaccessible 70% of the planet that's covered by water to the catalog of available sites that people could study and learn from. For I think, first, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead yeah. No, no, I was just going to say, for the first few decades, there were few finds. People were fascinated. You had things like the discovery of the Swedish worship Vasa around the same time, which was recovered and excavated on the surface, packed with mud. This intact worship from 1628 was a time capsule of Sweden at the time, as well as life on board the ship which had foundered on its maiden voyage. You had guys diving in rapids, finding overturned cargoes, or I should say cargoes from overturned fur trade canoes. You had digs here and there, and gradually it caught, caught on, and more and more work began to happen. By the 1970s, people were actually beginning to talk not only about individual projects, but more of a global approach to maritime archaeology. Keith McElroy wrote the first big major thinking book about maritime archaeology in 1978, and it progressed to the stage now there's practically no place on the planet, no ocean, no sea, that doesn't have uh, some form of archaeology going on beneath the water. You know, you made a, a very interesting and I think to me certainly a startling observation that really modern nautical archaeology got its start in the 1960s when George Bass undertook his programs. Uh, but obviously treasure hunting dates to way beyond that, right? I mean, there were divers who went uh, underwater looking for treasure well before that. Isn't that correct? Oh, absolutely. There was a fair amount of that, just as there was treasure hunting in... Um the ancient sites, I mean, let's not put too fine a varnish on it. I mean, people started digging in Pompeii and Herculaneum seeking treasures. People were using battering rams like Giovanni Battista Belzoni to get right. into Egyptian tombs. And that ultimately gave way. I mean, the idea that all archaeology would just be driven for by plunder or things to put on a shelf right. gave way to a more scientific study. That's not to say there still aren't people out there who want to dig stuff up and sell it, but scientific underwater archaeology that adds to the history books 
really didn't get going until Bass did his work. And what has happened since then has been an exponential growth to the stage now. We have thousands of sites that have been studied. I, I guess one of the real interesting questions, and, and I'm sure you can sort of cast a, a certain light on this, is when when the early days of underwater archaeology were, were just getting going, what kind of methodologies did they do? How did they get this started? Uh, obviously, there's this huge question of how long can you excavate? How can you set up early mapping grids uh, underwater? How do you develop protocols for doing that? That sort of thing. It seems such an onerous challenge. It, it's hard enough to do this above ground. And then, well, you know, yeah, that's, that's really one of the questions that I think a lot of people are interested in. Well, bear in mind, initially, a lot of this work is in the very shallow end of the pool. People are working in depths of less than 100 feet. In some cases, Galadonia, you're getting below 100 feet at, at Ulubarun. Mm-hmm. In the 1990s, you're at 180 feet. That's beyond the limit of most uh, sport divers, but technical divers can do it. But, you know, in 1960, what happened was they figured a lot of this out. And a fair amount of the work that was done by Bass and his colleagues remained the standard and still is the basic standard for doing the work. What has changed over the last two decades, and particularly in the last decade, has been a lot of this work is now done electronically in terms of mapping and documenting before excavating. But Claude Dutuis was not only a fellow who helped George Bass learn to dive, but he had, was a go-to guy, had worked with uh, a number of dive, sponge divers, had done a fair amount of work. He, um, a number of the other folks that were there with George early on helped him iron it all out uh, to making the iron frame that was the grid to raising artifacts to using actually a tire jack that they had packed uh, with enough grease to make sure it worked down there to lift heavy concretions off the rocks to bring to the surface and study them. From that and from just the innovation that saw not only archaeologists but engineers and other talented folks stepping into the into the field, it moved forward. And that's, I think, a key point to remember, and that is that Underwater archaeology, nautical archaeology, is more than just the archaeologist. There's a whole field of people that have worked through the years to make this happen. Talented people like Marty Klein, who defined and made side-scan sonar the tool for search and survey and now for documentation. Uh, People like Don Fry, who was not an archaeologist, who joined INA and became... uh, you know, the iconic photographer of these sites, not only in terms of documenting them scientifically, but beautiful shots that many people have seen on the cover of National Geographic. You have, today, you have PhDs in archaeological oceanography, like Mike Brennan or other people that we work with, who are driving remotely operated vehicles and conducting surveys, working with other folks to do digital three-dimensional maps, And through that, as well as cooperating and working with other scientists like oceanographers, geologists, geographers, uh, marine biologists, we really have come to a stage where now nautical archaeology is best conducted in a way not dissimilar to standing on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise with a science team ready there to go 
deploying probes and sensors, occasionally sending an away team to the bottom and doing the work. And powerfully, there's a lot more that we're doing now based on the new technology that is having us look but not touch. And we're learning a great deal just by doing that, not having to excavate in all cases. And again, this is this is a trend that's mirrored all over the profession, especially in this time when there's so much development and there's so much disturbance. And even standard archaeology is relying more and more on remote sensing technology, imagery, and uh, the entire digital and information revolutions that have changed things forever. Are we going to get to a point where actually doing the diving is, is going to be almost a second thought and that we'll be able to do much of the work uh, remotely? I think that we will never get rid of diving, nor would I want us to for a variety of reasons. One, there's no way at this stage that you can replace um, particularly in some of these sites that we've been working on, the delicacy of the human hand. Ultimately, I think we can get there robotically, but there's something about being a person down there and being one with your sight, having it in your vision, both peripherally as well as your focus and working it. What will happen perhaps is that we will get to more sophisticated dive suits where you can do that and have that touch with one atmosphere, but in a suit that's not a full submersible. ROVs are doing great work. We just did a project out in the Gulf of Mexico where the ROV did magnificent work in 4,300 feet of water where a diver can't go. But that's not to say ultimately that we can't armor somebody up in a version of a, of a nude suit. Have them go down and do that type of work. The other part of it is that when we do everything robotically, I think we lose something, and that is people like to be engaged by talking to somebody who's been there, who's done that. That's why we not only sent probes to the moon, but we had people go and walk on it. That's why ultimately we'll send people to Mars. We might not ever be able physically to walk on the decks of Titanic again, but wherever possible, even interacting it with in it with it through you know the the windows of a submersible, you're still there and part of it. And I think it's that which adds to the aura of exploration and discovery, which helps inspire not only inquiry but the next generation. And there's no question about that. That and it's probably going on in many areas. But I think so. I think what you're saying is that we will be much more efficient in our missions because we can use all these high technologies as very sophisticated survey strategies to be able to hone in on the probability of of a, a wreck being in a certain location, and we'll be able to be much more efficient in in the way we do these things. Absolutely. I think that what's also going to happen is that as the technology continues to grow, and not incrementally, it's growing rapidly, we're finding that the amount of data that comes off these sites is something we hitherto hadn't even thought possible. In terms of documenting a spill of amphora and getting them three-dimensionally, being able to conduct a detailed enough scan that you can get the volume measurement for that amphora without having to raise it. Right. Or when you do raise it, being able to conduct the kind of analysis that Brendan Foley has driven where you can extract the DNA even from a seemingly empty amphora and understand that it was carrying either garum or that it's carrying wine, in this case the wine that he found off of uh, Kios, 
was a wine infused with mastic. In other words, uh, old, old, old Retsina, perhaps. Right. Thousands of years old and from something that otherwise was just ostensibly filled with seawater. So, in so many ways, technology is giving us a, a whole new view of underwater archaeology, literally and figuratively. And so much of this work can be done remotely, and again, I guess in the interests of time efficiency and ultimately money, uh, these are very expensive operations to run, I know that, and you have to spend your money very wisely, and I think that with, uh, with information and uh, digital technology uh, expanding at such a high rate, I mean, this is obviously where this profession is going as it is in many other cases. And I, I'm sure you've seen that uh, in the past decade. Everything's been revolutionized. Is that true? It is very much so. But what's also happening is, and Bob Ballard had pushed this point a number of years ago, and most recently when we were out with Bob in the Gulf working, as well as working off of not only his ship, but the NOAA ship of exploration, Okeanos Explorer, we weren't just there as an archaeological team because getting into the oceans is costly, particularly in the depths. An archaeological mission today, as we did with these three very early 19th century wrecks in the Gulf of Mexico, included sediment studies. It included marine biological studies. Mm -hmm. And it also, thanks to the other great technological marvel, telepresence, had a number of scientists participating virtually who weren't on the ship. That was exciting because we had a whole range of colleagues that we could work with who could call in and participate through the headsets as if they were sitting there with us in the control cab. Right. So it's really a function of an expanding net of interdisciplinary specialists that converge. And I imagine that as a management strategy and as being a principal investigator that you have obviously been, this is quite an interesting operation and requires a tremendous amount of administrative and managerial skill. Well, it does, but what you're fortunate in having with something like that is you have an expedition leader who's not the chief scientist. You have a chief scientist who focuses on the work at hand. You have an expedition leader who handles all of that other stuff. And on our mission in the Gulf, we had Mike Brennan, archaeological oceanographer, who tackled all of that for us and did a magnificent job. And then the chief scientists and all the various principal investigators could do their work together as a finely tuned machine with somebody taking care of all of those very important, uh, you know, human uh, dimensions of the project. And we will be back with this very, very fascinating uh, discussion with Dr. James Delgado of NOAA after these words. Stay tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. 
For 27 years, KidStar has empowered thousands of kids across the country. And now we have the opportunity to empower children around the world. KidStar is announcing a new radio show called Voyage Earth. Voyage Earth will empower kids from across the world. KidStar has created a Kickstarter campaign just for this new undertaking. By pledging to Kickstarter, you pledge for a future of empowered people to come. My name is Lindsay Marie from Bookworms. I want to thank you for being a backer of our Kickstarter. Kidstar, we empower kids. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein with uh, an episode on nautical archaeology with our special guest, Dr. James Delgado, who is the Director of Maritime Heritage in the Office of National Maritime Sanctuaries for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And we had been discussing the amazing advances in underwater archaeological technology that have allowed us to be not only more efficient in undertaking this type of work, but in exponentially advancing the state of knowledge and reconstructing ancient shipwrecks and the environments in which they occurred and and what their histories are. Uh, I think that as people listen to this program, the inevitable question will come up uh, and uh, pointing to the fascination with some of the more significant wrecks in history and of course the most earth shattering one I guess over the past decade certainly or maybe it's more than that I'm losing sense of time is the revival of interest in the Titanic and I know Dr. Delgado that you were involved with that why don't you tell us a little bit about the background to the revised revived uh, excavations and the revived efforts and how that essentially uh, rekindled interest in in, uh, nautical archaeology for the public in general and created so many advances in the field. Well, Titanic is arguably the best-known shipwreck of our time, and that status has lasted for 102 years. There's a whole range of reasons why. I mean, it was the first modern media disaster. It certainly played out in the popular culture. But when Bob Ballard discovered Titanic in 1985 with Jean-Louis Michel, what that did was captivate the world. One, because the ship had been found, and we actually saw images of it two and a half miles down in the North Atlantic, but also the realization that the deepest parts of the ocean could be accessible to technology, and things once thought lost and forever lost, never to be found, could in fact be found. What happened since then, of course, is a series of dives to Titanic, to the dismay of some, the recovery of artifacts, to the joy of others, the recovery of artifacts, not as part of an archaeological project, but by a company founded to raise artifacts and put them on display. And through that medium, tell the story of Titanic. That 
led to a variety of responses that included uh, legislation in Congress asking for guidelines to take care of the wreck, an international agreement to deal with the wreck, and ultimately a fair amount of legal action. NOAA has played a, a pretty strong role in all of that. Um, I've also been fortunate prior to my time with NOAA to have been involved a bit with it. That's included uh, developing guidelines for appropriate work down there, uh, coming up with covenants that RMS Titanic, the company, agreed to, working with the court on what would happen with the artifacts. They'll never be sold off. They have to remain together as a collection. You can't just buy a piece off of Titanic. Um, but they are out on display. They belong to that company, which isn't a perfect solution for archaeologists, but stuff isn't being auctioned off. But what also happened was a sense that more needed to be done to learn about Titanic. And through the years, I guess because people are fascinated with it, because the questions are still there about exactly what happened, how it broke apart, the forensics of the event, the human interest makes Titanic probably the best studied part of the ocean floor in the entire world. I'm interested, yeah, uh, I'm interested in your perspective, and this is a, a broader archaeological question, um, and, and something I think all of us who are professionals have to wrestle with. Uh, I think you'll agree that the movie itself, Cameron's movie, catapulted this uh, discovery into directions that were even unimaginable to professionals and, and just got stirred up so much interest. What do you see as the sort of the margins between the commercial aspect of all of this and the professional aspect of all of it. And the fact that at this point in time, with, with the loss of funding for a lot of scientific ventures, you have to rely on public funds to do these things. And there is, in effect, a responsibility of the professionals to the general public. And, and, and uh, how do you see that interface playing out? Well, I don't feel that archaeology should become a commercial venture. I don't believe you pay for archaeology or archaeological conservation by selling off what you're dealing with. I think that's as bad as saying we're going to help save the elephants by selling some of the ivory from the elephants that have been shot. Mm -hmm. uh, that just crosses the line. And once you turn the past into a commodity, <laughs> by the past I mean the archaeologically excavatable scientifically available for study past. I'm not talking about a vase that somebody took out of Pompeii 200 years ago or an antique that's been in a house. Uh, but when there's a site that's capable of being studied, the moment somebody says, I can make a buck off of that by recovering it and selling it, I think it's a loss for science. So having said that, I think there are places where there is an appropriate interest that can help fund these things, and that has included films. There's a number of explorations, discoveries, and documentation uh, projects that have happened because a broadcaster or um, you know, a major entity like National Geographic has paid for it, and that's fine. They don't want an artifact. They want to be in on the discovery. They want to be able to capitalize on selling that film or getting out there, and Certainly, Jim Cameron's made a lot of money off of Titanic without have and added tremendously to our understanding of the wreck without having to pick anything up and sell it. RMS Titanic 
has recovered artifacts, but because they can't sell the artifacts off individually, because they don't want to sell the artifacts off individually, because they agreed, they make their money through this display. That's not perfect for all archaeologists. And I'm not going to debate the point. I'm just going to simply say it is what it is with that. They've actually proven over the last while in working with us to be more interested in seeing the site protected and in sharing its story as opposed to just what more can we find. And that's that. So in 2010, we were able to work with them as the government and as other partners to come together to virtually map Titanic. I think for them commercially, the interest was clear. They would have a product in time that would be a three-dimensional opportunity to see Titanic in high resolution, not only on a screen, but if the technology evolved to a point where you could interact with it, where people are starting to move with this, either with 3D glasses or in some version in the future of a Star Trek holodeck. People would be able to walk the decks of Titanic virtually, as we saw it in 2010. And we were able to capture a lot of that detail thanks to Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute's Advanced Imaging Visualization Lab with Bill Lang and Evan Kovacs and their crew. High-res, detailed 3D of the bow and stern, which people have seen thus far in National Geographic as tremendous images in the magazine, not necessarily realizing that they're made out of a series of patches of 7 megapixel tiny segments of the wreck that have been stitched together into a supercomputer to give us this this sense of Titanic. You could ultimately on the screen recreate Titanic in practically full scale. What also happened was three-dimensional sonar mapping, not just of those large sections of the wreck, but everything in between. So for the first time, we were able to turn the lights on and better understand everything that's there on the seabed from disturbed sections of the seabed to where the ship had plowed in to scattered artifacts from large sections of the hull and machinery that had come out when the ship broke apart to smaller artifacts down to teacups, all very carefully mapped out, giving us a sense not only of Titanic uh, for study, but also Titanic in terms of how it could be managed in the future. And by that, what we also found in mapping it was a fair amount of modern garbage. We also found a fair amount of material from various visits to the wreck where drop weights for the return to the service had been left in spots that were sensitive in terms of artifacts. What we were able to do is work as the U.S. government through our contact with the International Maritime Organization to have a voluntary marine protected area established on the high seas around Titanic where vessels now, thanks to the IMO, will no longer discharge not only trash but gray or or black water from their bilges. They won't anchor, they won't trawl. And when subs go down now, there's a safe zone established to it, both land and to come back that won't impact artifacts. So that was a direct result of the 2010 mapping mission. What are some of the more dramatic finds, some of the more dramatic wrecks that you've worked on to which you either have or can apply some of this technology to recreate and reconstruct these scenes um, 
based on, on, on your own experiences, are there any wrecks that are significant that you may have discovered, say, 20 years ago, that you now say, wow, there's so much more information I could get if I applied new technology, and what would that be? Well, there's wrecks that um, we've looked at. For example, the ones at Bikini. Uh, 1989-1990, we were hand-drawing these wrecks and taking photographs and video. Now, if I was to go back to Bikini and use this new technology, we could capture Bikini three-dimensionally, not just individual ships like the aircraft carrier Saratoga or the battleship Arkansas or the battleship Nagato or the sub-pilot fish or the attack transport Gilliam, but all of them together around this underwater nuclear crater with everything that was swept off of their decks in the blast and the atomic tidal waves from airplanes to half-tracks and tanks to test instruments, all there in this simulated nuclear battlefield at the dawn of the atomic age. What, uh, let me, you know, getting back to that, dawn of the atomic age and some of the wrecks, certainly of the 20th century, what kind of information are we generating through archaeology that we don't know from historical documentation? Obviously, in historical archaeology, on the ground, above ground, uh, there are a lot of secrets and there's a lot of interpretations that are generated based on the archaeology that don't necessarily conform to historical accounts. And, and in many cases, especially when you go farther back in time, you see that some of the people who recorded some early significant historical events certainly had a bias in terms of trying to uh, explain what really happened, whereas the archaeology could somehow provide a more objective assessment and certainly more advanced stories so, so that, for example, what actually caused the Titanic to split apart was information that I think to some degree was uh, interpreted based on the forensic evidence. Are you? Can you give us some other examples of where the archaeology has contributed so much more to the understanding of what we had previously thought we understood? Well, there's a couple of cases. I mean, there's many cases, but there's one that springs right to mind, and that is the Civil War submarine H.L. Hunley. That vessel is the first ever to sink another ship in combat during the American Civil War in February of 1864 in Charleston Harbor. The archaeology in this case not only focused on the discovery, the recovery, the ongoing the excavation of the interior and the ongoing documentation and conservation of Hanley, but also the ship that it sank, the USS Housatonic. The archaeology of that is a battlefield, and putting the two pieces together again, thanks to there being a frozen battlefield on the bottom of the ocean, has given us a much different perspective than one previously offered. The crew of the Hanley didn't survive. The crew of Housatonic are responding in a time of stress. Their ship has been attacked. It's been sunk by a, an explosion, and it's, it's dark. But what's also important is that the analysis of Hanley not only resolved exactly what had happened to the, the ship and crew, they drifted off not too far away from their victim and then became victims themselves. The crew appeared to have succumbed, perhaps just to exhaustion and lack of oxygen, and died at their benches in position. But also what's been key with this is understanding that this craft derided by contemporary accounts or heralded in others, was quite sophisticated, spoke to a very complex understanding, not only of engineering, but also of hydrodynamics. It's a vessel that was built to sublimate its performance to underwater, as opposed to running on the surface. 
It was a vessel which had a hand-cranked mechanism, but one which was geared and shifted and was capable of moving this sub quickly through the water. It had a battery in it that was used to detonate the weapon that was on the end of this long iron spar, this torpedo, as they called it, in the days when they were simply a stationary object that exploded as opposed to something you shot out of a tube. And that it was flush riveted and and smooth skinned, something that most people thought came much later. So our ancestors were not dummies, and the guys that were in this vessel did pay a price because the technology wasn't quite up to scrubbing the air fast enough, most likely, or the proximity to the explosion stunned them and there was a leak. It's hard to say exactly. That work still goes on. The archaeology continues in the lab, but Hunley has given us tremendous new insights into the advent of submarine technology. In the decades before, the U-boats began to reap a more terrible um, harvest in World War One. That's just one example of what we've learned. And then you just need to look at the Antikythera device found in 1900 and recently reanalyzed and reconstructed, which was a complex navigational computer. Again, people in the past were far smarter than we've ever you know, been willing to give them credit for. And I think that that's one of the most amazing things about archaeology is understanding that prehistoric peoples are sophisticated and smart and artistic, that everybody else had their own unique moments of brilliance, as well as the times when we as a species are incredibly dumb, (laughs) but that there is a complexity to human life, and the things we leave behind can speak powerfully and add to the history books or rewrite them. Yes, and on that note, we're going to take another break, and we'll be back with our final segment with Dr. Delgado after these words. Stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we have been talking to uh, the distinguished researcher and the head of NOAA, uh, Dr. James Delgado, about some of the phenomenal advances in marine arch- uh, in underwater and marine archaeology, nautical archaeology, and uh, what we're able to do and reinterpret based on the high technology that's currently being applied to nautical archaeology, and it has certainly revolutionized the field. One of the elements that is of a critical significance in the field generally, and certainly in nautical archaeology as well, is conservation and the entire question of preservation management and heritage management. And I know, Dr. Delgado, that you have dedicated your more recent efforts in that direction. Why don't you explain somewhat to the audience about the National Marine Sanctuary? And, and your your present mission to uh, enhance preservation context and uh, to promote the message of that to future generations. Well, the idea that everything needs to be excavated uh, would be a pretty expensive one, given that there's some three million wrecks, and not all wrecks, I think, should be excavated. Some should be set aside for future time. Others have values that perhaps are different. They're historic sites in which archaeology could be done, but there's no compelling reason to do a big dig. Or they're memorials, they're war graves, and people want them left alone. Or they're unique sites that are captivating for diving. Um, for a whole variety of reasons, there are, there's a need to keep museums in the sea. And with that, the National Marine Sanctuary System, like national parks in their underwater areas, as well as all the other state parks or other marine protected areas, are areas where we can put some focus on keeping things on the bottom, understanding there will be change of sorts. Uh, everything changes and, and transmutes over time, even shipwrecks in fresh water and cold water that otherwise seem like time capsules. But having said that, Sanctuaries, and there are 14 of them around the country and out in the Pacific, are special ocean places where we have coral reefs or unique marine biota. We have a spawning ground for sharks off of the California coast. You have rich kelp beds off of the Channel Islands. You have humpback whales breeding and interacting off of the coast of Hawaii, and so on. So my job is to deal with the maritime heritage that's in each of those 14 sanctuary sites. That means as well we work outside the sanctuaries in cooperation with other governments or at times when there's something very important to the country where we, with the other members of the family of underwater archaeologists in the government, be it the Park Service or the Navy or the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management or the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement and others, will come together to take a look at wrecks that are important to the country and then take some steps to deal with them, usually seeking their protection. What I think for me the most fascinating aspect of it is that as we do this work, we increasingly see that people 
captivated by it. The biggest news stories we have in NOAA have been the discovery of wrecks either in sanctuaries or, or close to them. Just this past week, we announced the find of a, an intact German U-boat from the Battle of the Atlantic with its crew on board miles off the North Carolina coast as part of an ongoing archaeological survey of the Battle of the Atlantic. That generated over 20,000 news stories and bounced all over the world, and it's brought a lot of attention, not only to that boat and to the Battle of the Atlantic and to the fact that we're out there doing this survey, but also the fact that there's an ocean out there full of important and amazing things. And that's one reason why we have a Maritime Heritage Program in Sanctuaries is because of that human interest, because of the stories that archaeology provides, it gets people thinking about the oceans, which, frankly, I don't think enough of us do think about. It's more than just 70% of the planet. It's the source of much of the air we breathe. It is the source of all of the water on the planet, ultimately. Yes. It's, it's where life began. It's the source of over half of our food, and it's the means by which 90% of our goods still move by water to go to, to market. So we've got to deal with it, and it's in trouble. So when we do our work and we have public's attention because we're on Titanic, and then we pan over and we show the modern garbage, or when we're elsewhere and we talk about the marine life that's there, when the exploration of not only past civilizations, but new life is occurring, and people are watching, like the 700,000 that were watching us on our last mission on the wrecks that we were working on in the Gulf of Mexico, we can talk about the bigger ocean issue and why we need places in the oceans that are set aside to be protected. And so that's, that's a key part of the job. But what I also like is that when we're doing this work, it helps us use the past to better inform the future. That means making decisions about not only ocean planning, but it also means through the magic of discovery and through learning and by applying yourself and being an explorer, because 95% of those oceans are still unexplored. That tells young people that they have a place to go, that they have a mission to fulfill. They don't need to go into space. The final frontier is out there, and that frontier includes an incredible amount of information about our past, not just shipwrecks, but all those areas of the planet that were once dry, that were overtaken by climate change at the last glacial maximum and are now flooded with evidence of very early humans, as well as megafauna, you name it. So if you want to be part of that, and if they're watching these missions, then that's, to me, one of the best parts of the job. It's interacting with young people, having them join the missions, and play a role. And for me, I, you know, I, I think of all the projects I've worked on, one of the most powerful was one a few years back, Thanks to Sony and Intel, we took five kids from Arthur Hill High School in Saginaw, Michigan, who, small-town kids, hadn't really been out, done much. They competed for the opportunity. Sony wanted to see if five kids could find a shipwreck using a laptop. Well, they did use the laptop, but they also worked hard, went through all sorts of data, looked through a lot of sonar data we would gathered to go try to find a specific wreck, then went out, drove the boat with us, dragged huh? site scanned sonar, and found not the wreck they were looking for, but two others. And then were there spearheading with a talented team, the team from Woods Hole that we'd worked on Titanic with, 
to drop down and document those wrecks and learn their history. And I'll tell you what, watching the light come on in their eyes and seeing that not all of those five, I doubt any of them will actually become a nautical archaeologist, but it gave them a lesson in life and I think move them forward, and I stay in touch with all of them now. They're my Facebook friends, and these five <laughs> exceptional young people learned that there, not everything has been done, that there's a place to go and things to do, and they learned the value of curiosity and questing and how archaeology can be a part of that. In terms of conservation and in terms of preservation, which seems certainly to be one of the major foci of where archaeology is going in these days, I think a lot of people would be very interesting, interested in knowing how climate change and the sudden spike in, 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 in methane and, and, and in carbon-enriched gases, uh, how has that affected and what are the dangers that climate change is posing to underwater uh, cultural resources? Well, there's a fair amount that we're seeing in the sanctuaries, which are sentinel sites. They're canaries in the coal mine. And what we see there and in the communities that border them is climate change is real. Sea level rise is also real. And so the lessons we're learning from the conservation of the sites we have not only gives us a better sense of how, to, how resources are being impacted by acidification, but also how coastal archaeological resources are under threat and how some hard decisions are going to have to be made. Um, doesn't pass, uh, you know, it, we, we all think pretty clearly about this when we're out there working on sites, even in shallow water, and looking at them, that there's only going to be a, it's only a matter of time, and there are going to be places now where people are driving and walking that are going to be underwater in the next century and beyond. And if we can learn anything from how people dealt with that before, so much the better. An awful lot of our work actually has been working with indigenous culture and people whose ancestors lived through the last climate change and who have these stories passed through their traditions and who know very clearly that out there in the water are the remains of their, their ancestors' homes and where the bones of their ancestors lie. So we, we actually held a symposium where First Nations and other indigenous folks could inform us from their perspective about climate change, looking back 10,000 years and more. But what we're also seeing, too, is that there are going to be cases where we will, just as I think we have um, underwater with certain sites, we're going to have to make some hard choices about what we can and can't save and what gets preserved in place. And that's, yes, yes, it's just like any other a site, monument, I mean, these are basically monuments, and you're right, it's obviously going to take hard hard and cold decisions as to what stays and, and what we sort of have to sacrifice, and, and I think uh, you're saying that one of the messages that you have to project to upcoming professionals and to the lay public in general is that uh, we're in danger here and that we need to be very careful and we need to be very conscious of those resources 
resources because they have a lot to teach us. And uh, the, you have programs in at NOAA that are dedicated towards extending the ethic and towards promoting the ethic uh, per se. I mean, are there, uh, are there those types of programs that the government is undertaking? Yes, well, I mean, bear in mind that we are America's environmental science, you know, ocean science agency, as well as the weather. And through sure. the National Ocean Service, through the National Weather Service, uh, through all of these uh, aspects of NOAA, not just sanctuaries, we're out there as NOAA, working on behalf of the American people, dealing with the ocean that is so vital to our economy and to our, our, our way of life as Americans and because it is a global ocean, to the rest of humanity as well. So we look seriously at climate change. We understand when something like Superstorm Sandy happens that the impacts on coastal communities are profound. An awful lot of our focus is on helping coastal communities develop resilience in the face of this. We have an Office of Coast Survey which consistently goes out and has to resurvey uh, approaches to harbors after something like Sandy to keep the flow of commerce going. So we, we're on the front lines of this. We see it all the time, not only in the sanctuaries, which, as I said, are canaries in the coal mine for ocean change, but also we see it every day when NOAA personnel are out there doing their work. Are you satisfied that policymakers are getting the message? Uh, are we... Uh, going through a period where uh, there's still there's still po- well we know there's still pockets of uh, climate change denial. Um, are you starting to sense that maybe we're turning the corner on that and that we'll be able to implement these kinds of critical changes that have to be made um, for us to maintain our planet and especially the water component of that planet? Well, personally, I think more uh, what I see is. I think more people are getting the message. More people are talking about it at every level, including policymakers. I think being a student of history, I know ideas, particularly scary ideas, are difficult to accept. But ultimately, I think what I've found is that we are a resilient species. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been around for the couple hundred thousand years we have, and we wouldn't have spread around the globe in the way we have. There are consequences to that, but I think increasingly my hope is that we learn from that. And that's an important reason why we do archaeology, is in cases where we've forgotten or the record is lost, we can use what we learn to better inform not only what we're doing, but where we're headed. And your major initiatives right now are in that direction. Uh, you, were, you were saying during the break that you're trying to uh, bring up, in a sense, the next generation of professional nautical archaeologists. Are we seeing um, a group of people that is uh, de- dedicated to going into the field for those reasons rather than just simply being fascinated by wrecks? I mean, are they understanding that uh, part of the mission is conservation and preservation? I think we're seeing that. What we're also seeing is people understanding that the area of study is our interaction with the oceans, the lakes, and the rivers, our impact on them, their impact on us. It's a much bigger perspective than just looking at one wreck or one group of wrecks. It's rather a larger, more global sense of the vast maritime cultural landscape that is the planet. And... If you take that approach, which we do in sanctuaries, which a number of our colleagues do, 
what you see is that it really is the story of us responding to this driving force on our planet and now increasingly how over time we have come to change that. And on that note, I want to thank my special guest, Dr. James Delgado, for sharing this special hour with us. And I want to extend my appreciation to you for participating in the program. And uh, stay tuned next week with another episode. And again, it's your planet. Take care of it. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.